Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. And I am Louise Palanker. Here at Media Path, we carefully select entertainment that will feed your sense of curiosity. Think of us as a keto diet for your soul. We also talk to the best guest. Today is Two for Tuesday. We have two talented guests, a longtime friend, Dylan Brody, who is a comic and a writer and an author and a playwright, one of the great storytellers in the business. His one-man show is up Tuesday, June 20th at the Improv Lab in Hollywood, showtime at 9.15. It's called Thinking Aloud. Can't wait to talk to Dylan about that. Then we're going to dive into a new book with its author, Wes Davis. It's called American Journey. It's a fascinating story of three of America's most important historical figures, Thomas Edison, Henry Ford, and naturalist John Burroughs, who become friends and travel the country together, exploring nature, assessing the state of our country at the turn of the 20th century, and doing some male bonding. Wes will be with us shortly. But first, my friend Dylan Brody, many one-person shows. He won the Stanley Drama Award for his play, Mother May I. He's been on A&E's Comedy on the Road, Fox's Comedy Express. He's written for Mr. Leno. And I think his most amazing credit, he's open for David Sedaris, one of the great writers and spoken word performers on the planet. Robin Williams said about Dylan's writing, the writing is brilliant. Great to have you here, my friend. Who did, the, who did that great fighting. sketch? Was that Picasso? Who did that sketch of you on your webpage there? Uh, that's correct. Uh, Pablo Picasso and I were very good friends. We <laughs> road shared trips. a road we trips. briefly yeah we briefly shared an apartment in Barcelona oh. with a dog named Bruce. <laughs> yeah. uh, and uh, he did that sketch for me because you know uh, it was a it was a it was a, actually a favor for my parents. I <laughs> I don't know who did what sketch. No, I don't a even sketch. know what sketch you're referring to. No, the one that's on your website on the uh, So I want to talk about opening for Sedaris, and I think this is a brilliant casting for you because he, he's so smart and so thoughtful, which is right in your wheelhouse. Was that as much fun as it probably would seem to it, be? It felt. Every time, and I, I opened for him several times over three years, uh, and every time it felt like the fulfillment of a childhood fantasy. Yeah, he's a great he writer. Was, I laugh out great, loud reading his stuff. Oh, oh man, if you want to be left alone on a train, <laughs> just sit there reading David and laughing aloud, and you will be... Uh, he put me in front of audiences... Uh, that were, first of all, bigger than than the audiences I could draw on my own. So that's always lovely. But also, uh, there was a joke uh, that I rewrote from the easy uh, sexist version that I did on the road in my 20s. When I realized <laughs> it was inherently misogynist, I rewrote it so that it was a better joke. And I used to have arguments with comics because it doesn't get as big a laugh in clubs as the old joke got. Mm -hmm. And they would say, well, if it doesn't get a big laugh, how could it be a better joke? And that joke showed up in a story that I did when I was opening for Sedaris. And his audience mm -hmm. not only laughed at it, but it created uh, one of those rolling applause breaks mm -hmm. that you can hear move from the back of the room forward. Well, what I respect uh, about you is you're not afraid to be smart. And I've said that about, no, honestly, because listen, let, let, if we had the if if I could show you an imaginary graph of the uh, American intelligence, the graph is going down, just like inflation at about the same rate it's going down. But you, you're not afraid to be smart. And I said that about one other guy. I'm sure you were a fan of Dennis Wolfberg. What I loved about oh. Dennis was he was not afraid to be smart, and he would still kill. And even if he didn't understand exactly what the nuance was, you would still laugh at him. He was yeah. Very, anyway. 
I, you know, I have said since uh, the Reagan administration that we were actively moving into a dark age and we all needed to, to engage our intellect and our creativity and our innovation if we wanted to enter a renaissance from the dark age. And I forgot that a plague comes in between. <laughs> oh, 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 yes, the timing. Well, we just oh. finished that. Have well, you had your shots? Go but ahead. you enjoy challenging audiences and and kind of inviting them to do some thinking so that they can laugh together and move us all forward as a people. That's what my new show is about, actually. Yeah, I think... Uh, um, Yes, I'm not afraid to be smart. I'm not afraid to admit that I'm smart. Anti-intellectualism has become uh, ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. uh, and I consider it dangerous to the civilization, to society. Um, and in the new show, really what it's about, although, you know, it's my usual personal stories, although now I'm also doing music, which is brand new for me. Um, the new show is about the idea that we have to explore new areas, each of us, mm -hmm. the areas we're drawn toward that we all have the epigenetic capacity for greatness and have been taught to sit down and be quiet at the very moment that we all need to be figuring out just what we can do and how we can be of service to the world. Mm -hmm. But we don't want to just make noise, which is what I think the internet encourages, you know, be the loudest, be the one who's getting the most retweets because of the outrageousness of what you've said all heat and no light you're exactly yeah right. yeah 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 so how do we encourage folks to just celebrate their own brilliance their own thoughts around a dinner table just with folks as they exchange ideas it doesn't have to be you don't have to be an influencer uh well first of all by individually being supportive of one another's endeavors and ideas you know, just at yeah. the one-on-one -on -one level, we can all encourage this sort of thing. Um, I, as a writing coach, as a as a uh, facilitator of workshops and so on, uh, and as a martial arts instructor and master, I am aware that everybody is coming into everything as a beginner now. Mm -hmm. The world has changed around us, and nobody is keeping up with it. So now it's the time for us all to be kind and on the same team and striving to figure it out together, as opposed to giving in to the impulse to be competitive and snarky and mean because that may get fast laughs. You know, um, Fritz and I worked together, Louise. Uh, <laughs> I wrote for Fritz uh, at the time when Kinnison and Clay were coming up. The guys that I think of as the right wing rebels, you know, <laughs> okay. they they were they were presenting really fairly reactionary ideas. Yeah. Uh, homophobia is uh, hilarious. Uh, uh, wife beating is understandable. And then they created the illusion that they were somehow breaking new ground by cursing a lot mm -hmm. after that had already been solved by, you know, actual progressives, uh, Lenny and, and, and George. Right. Um, and. Now, I think simply by being willing to be smart in public, by being willing to be funny in ways that challenge people, by adhering to the truth, even when an easy lie might get a better laugh, we inspire and encourage others to trust their consciences over social pressure. Mm -hmm. Well said. Uh, I, I think humanity is designed. We are rigged to want to learn and develop and invent. And we have to be trained to be passive. 
Mm. Uh, that's very interesting. So I, I'm guessing because words are the, the, the key to your success and your talent, that wordsmiths were your uh, impetus like Mr. Carlin. Was it was he? Oh. He was the man, right? I agree. I, oh, yeah. I grew I up, I would watch any any television show that I thought might have Carlin on it. <laughs> but I didn't understand that they weren't just all drawing from the same talent pool. So, like, I had seen him on Flip Wilson, and then I would sit through insufferable hours of Sonny and Cher and the <laughs> Mac Davis when you're hot, you're hot show, thinking he might show up. Um, I loved Carlin. Uh, I loved uh, David Robert Steinberg. Klein? David Steinberg. Robert Robert Klein, Dick Cavett. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, there was this time uh, before Reagan, before, you know, Forrest Gump came out as a grand celebration of how we can have a, a heroic history as a nation if we just learn to see it through the eyes of a moron. Um, <laughs> and, and if you go out and you learn anything about your world, you're going to die of AIDS. And if you if you take responsibility for your fellow humans, you're going to wind up a bitter cripple. Uh, but as long as you're stupid, you can have vast success and be in the right place at the right time. Uh, before all of that became so popular, uh, uh, under you know I'm going back, but under Kennedy and then passing through into Nixon and and then a little bit under Carter, there was a celebration of smart on television. Mm -hmm. uh, right. There was this idea that television could be used to reach people with ideas not just to draw people in and hold them through the commercials. Or that perhaps the, the most interesting, thoughtful people should be the ones with shows. Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I went from, I, although Carson's one of my great heroes, I went right. over to Cabot <clears throat> because he had these great guests on Gore Vidal and they talk about really heady stuff and it was interesting. You felt like you were moving forward when you watched that show. I remember as a child watching uh, Dick Cavett interview an aging Groucho Marx. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh there's a whole movie about that yeah, now. That's great. It, it was the first time as a kid that I was seeing anybody talk and think about comedy in the ways that I was starting to. Mm. It was incredibly exciting. And now there is nothing going on on television that is really about inspiring uh, anyone toward the arts or the sciences or ideation. It's all about rehashing of simplistic storyline. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's heartbreaking to me. When I, was a, I, when, I, when I was a junior yeah. in high school, I, I, I think I had an experience very similar to yours. When I was a, a junior in high school, my uncle gave me tickets to see George Carlin at this place called the Valley Forge Music Fair. Remember the Melody Fair they had in yes. Buffalo? In the summer, these eastern cities have these giant tents. They're like Cirque du Soleil tents, and they're quite comfortable and beautiful, and they seat like 3,000 people. So he gave me... Um, of tickets to go and I you know my only exposure to stand up was you know the five minute set on Merv Griffin or Carson so I didn't know uh, uh, what an evening with a stand up comic was like and so Carlin comes out and I didn't know the tricks of you know working on a show for a year or two years and memorizing it as you go along and building it modularly and I watched this man come out on stage and, and he had this great gift of being able to uh, make it seem like he'd never said the words before and it literally, without exaggerating, was like a religious experience to me. I said, that's the greatest amount of power you can have over a group of human beings is to convulse them with smart language and uh, wonderful, interesting philosophies and thoughts. And it changed my life. I never thought I could do it professionally, but that was a, that, that, that was a day that was it was a, it was a, it was like being born again to me. 
<laughs> yeah. I I, how... I, oh, I understand that completely. The day that I first heard Lord Buckley on, on oh, there you go, yeah, uh, on a record, and I was an adult. I my parents did not introduce me to Lord Buckley because they, I think at some level associated him with William F. Buckley <laughs> and didn't know who he was or what. But so while I was, you know, interested in comedy, they were helping a lot, uh, but that wasn't, they didn't get me there. And I found uh, Lord Buckley when I was in my late twenties or early thirties, just as I had shifted from straight ahead stand up comedy into the kind of storytelling and long form stuff mm -hmm. that I do now. Mm -hmm. And when I discovered it, I, I understood what was possible for me yeah. on a stand-up stage. Yeah. Help us uh, understand what, what you're about to do with your show and what you what you term as industrialized comedy and how that may be, you know, in sort of encouraging the dumbing down of, you know, our, our ability to kind of like catch up with the joke and aspire, you know, to be smart enough to get the joke, the storytelling, the slower pace, the just the, the conversation. Um. Okay, that's there's a lot to unpack there. Uh, Sorry, industrial. It's okay. I I want to start with that phrase, industrial comedy, because I think that's yours. I don't think I've ever said it before, but I'm definitely. No, it's right out of it. your bio. Oh well, that makes perfect sense then. Industrialized must be, must be something I said at some time. Um, yeah, industrialized comedy is uh, the entertainment industry long ago started actively dissociating itself from the arts. Because when you recognize that you're creating art, you have to take responsibility for what you say. Oh. Um, and in fact, the entertainment industry is putting out, you know, 27-minute plays, whatever a sitcom is, and 47-minute uh, uh, plays in, the, in the, the copaganda world that all say the same thing over and over again. So they, they say it's, it's the entertainment industry. It's not art. If we, uh, it's not show art. It's show business, mm -hmm. they say. And if you want to send a message, call Western Union. Oh, and that frees them to send all these pro status quo messages all the time. Now, because comedy in the 80s and 90s exploded with cable television and the showcase programs that allowed them to create episode after episode after episode without having to pay any writers, uh, uh, we wound up with first the four to one laugh per minute ratio and now the five to one laugh per minute ratio. And this requires uh, an insistent demand for laughter from the audience that prevents the building of a long form thought mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because every joke requires the resetting of a, of a mind, right? Mm -hmm. That's why people used to say, but seriously, folks, <laughs> the audience needs to once again buy in. Okay. This is a real sentence. It's not, Oh, it was a setup again. You fooled me. Right. It's the same <laughs> trick every 15 years. I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Now when I do long form stories, there are times that I will go, believe it or not, a whole minute and a half without a laugh. Wow, is there any napping? What happens? I well, I bring people further and further into the work and into the imagery and into the world I'm creating. Mm -hmm. So that when the laughter comes, it is far more satisfying and far more revealing and far more informative. Meantime, with the new show, I'm putting in these songs. Uh, I am creating a framework that is based on an old druid uh, poetry form. Mm. Uh, the 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 there's a, a three stanza poem that druids did, sort of in the way that that modern Christians teach their kids to say a prayer that is the same prayer every night. Mm -hmm. Druids taught them to do this three part poem that changes as you grow. It starts with "I have been 
long stanza, and then I am, a shorter stanza, and then one sentence, I will be. Mm. So that you're mm. constantly evaluating what is in the past and where you are now and what your current aspiration is. It's a beautiful structure. And I start with background on me and some older material that sort of sets the stage. And then I build us into the present and where we are now in a world where just to breathe together in the same room is sort of a challenge. Mm. And then in the final piece of the show, I introduce them to the idea that the future may be something other than apocalyptic. Oh, that um, right. We give them hope. What are you trying to do to us? <laughs> I, you know what? I think we are desperate for it. Yeah. No, I and, think so too. Um, we just spent 20 years doing uh, zombie apocalypse movies and decimated planet movies and assuming an end of the world uh, uh, future. And we cannot even begin to solve problems until we begin to look forward and imagine a future. We just tested... Uh, net positive uh, fusion energy. Yeah, that's huge. It's yep. huge. Mm -hmm. We could right now... It's going to be a while just... before it's practical. 10 or 15 years. 10 years. It will change yeah. everything. Years. It will change and, the planet. And it will change the planet if right now we can say we have the capacity to change the planet. We mm -hmm. have a free energy source. Mm -hmm. It makes as little sense to charge people for this energy as it makes for us to have to pay a royalty to, to Prometheus's uh, estate every time we light a match. <laughs> or to breathe air. Right? Yeah. Exactly. I wrote a short science fiction story that I haven't started submitting yet because I'm still rewriting it. But it's about a bunch of bums at a gas station in the, the not-so-distant future huddled around collecting quarters so they can suck air out of the pump. Oh, my goodness. I love that. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if there's scarcity, there's demand, right? But Yeah. But still, it's whoever's harnessing the energy is getting the money. But so, energy right. belongs but, to but all But if us. the universe provides it freely. <laughs> right. Right. Then do we really have a right to charge for it? Exactly. Beautiful. I, I, it's obvious to us that we could do like a six-part series with you with all the current uh, conundrums of the world because you have great opinions about them. But I don't want to lose the opportunity to plug this show. Is this new, Thinking Aloud? Have you been workshopping it? Are you on the road with it? This is brand new. The world premiere. Oh, cool. June 20th. Uh, 945 po uh, show, it turns out. It's a 945 show ticket uh, uh, on sale at the booth, 915. Um, at the Improv booth, at, it's Melrose, correct? Uh, yes, Improv Lab at Melrose, at the Melrose Improv. Uh, it is so exciting for me to do this piece. Mm. Uh, it's been a long time since I was terrified. Aww. Oh, yeah. You know, I know how jokes work. I know how to walk on any comedy club in the country and do jokes as long as I do the funniest stuff of my stories and own the room for the amount of time. I am doing... There are some jokes that I know work in this thing. Don't get me wrong. But I, I am doing some stuff in this that is so new and will feel so unusual in a comedy club mm. that I'm almost giddy with anticipation. I bet you feel better in a theater setting than in a club, you know, when 25-year-olds are trying to get laid and, and there's alcohol rampant. And I, I know I do. I, it doesn't even have to be a big theater. I just like it when they're paying attention and they're not anesthetized. First of all, let me say, when there are 20-somethings uh, trying to get laid, I always assume there is a chance of daddy issues. 
<laughs> and that just raises my spirits immensely. Um, I, while I do, in fact, prefer theatrical settings, the improv is home to me. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, uh, that's where I started. I got in at the improv in New York when I was 17. Wow. Yeah, under that's... Silver. Um, and when I came out here, uh, I didn't get in right away. I wound up doing some time up at the comedy store, uh, having my soul sucked out of me. But still, when I needed to feel comfort and a stage that I loved, I would go down to the improv. Mm-hmm. And uh, It was never to... an easy room. I found it was never an easy room because there was a lot of uh, show business people in there, very judgmental people who just had heard it all before. So if you had a good night at the improv, you had a good night. Yeah, that's exactly right. It was the only place where I ever felt like I could legitimately be on a first name basis with the bartender, you know? <laughs> It was just, I, I love that room. So, yeah, most most of the time, Fritz, absolutely right. Theaters over comedy clubs, 100% of the time. Uh, but also, the improv just feels so loving to me. Yeah. It's like it's it's like performing in my parents' living room. Aww. Oh, there we go. That's well, good. Except, folks go except to... without having to talk to my parents. Oh, yeah, know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you don't want to be rude, but you can walk around in like a wide berth. Should people go to dylanbrody.com? Yes. Okay. And where else? Where else can they go to find? He's got tickets? merch. He's got clips. He's got everything on there. Right. Go but to, to DylanBrady.com. If you want to write, if you want to uh, do my workshops, go to Active Voice Productions. I do everything there through Active Voice Productions. Mm-hmm. And uh, go to the Improv to buy tickets. Go to the Improv. Uh, there it is. Ticket yeah. Web has them. I bet Eventbrite has them. But I know the Improv itself. You just go to uh, whatever the Improv's. Uh, you you uh, don't do a lot of politics, but. Um, I, I don't, although the second question that I ask any Trump supporter now is, why are you yelling? <laughs> we, we do have to move on to our next guest. Okay, absolutely. Well, hey, listen, man, I'm so proud of you. You're, you've always been smart. You wrote on my show, and it was a pleasure just reading your stuff even before I got a chance to do it. Love you so much, Fritz. Thanks right, so much for uh, giving me work when I was starving and young. Oh, there you go. Say hi to Wes. <laughs> Wes. Hi, Wes. Wes. Good to meet you. God, I, if I'd grow my beard long enough, I want it to look just like Wes's. That is a beautiful it, piece of work. It's gorgeous. It is really gorgeous. Hey, Wes. Hey, how Wes. Are you? How are you? Can you hear us? We can't Bye, hear Dylan. Him. Bye, Dylan. Thank you so much. Nice to have you with us. Are you muted? Oh, uh, hello. Yes. There, there we you are. are. I, Thank you. We're so happy to have you with us, Wes. Wes Davis is an author. His writings appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. His first book was the A Rodney Objective, one of the great names of a book. Even if you don't know what it's about, it's so it's mysterious. It's like the Hudsucker Proxy. It's a great name that you don't know anything about, but you don't have to. Wes has a PhD from Princeton in English Literature, and he is the editor uh, of a Harvard University Press anthology of modern Irish poetry. Today we're going to talk to him about his latest book, American Journey, On the Road with Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, and John Burroughs. It is a wonderful story about three guys that seem to work out of different compartments in their brain, but travel around observing the changes they've all helped to make in American life and becoming good friends in the process. Welcome, Wes. It's nice to talk to you. Oh, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Listen, 
this is like a story that somebody fabricated. Like, what if we put Henry Ford, John Burroughs, you know, the Hershey chocolate guy, all in a room? What kind of a conversation well, if, would they have? If but they were the, in an elevator, yeah, it'd be, yeah. maybe in an elevator, yeah. it'd be great. It, it it would be they would fictionalize it on PBS like a conversation between yeah. Galileo and Pablo Picasso. But it's really <laughs> fascinating. So just give us an overview. Describe these guys and the trip they made and the time frame early 20th century. It really is wonderful. Yeah, so well, I guess the thumbnail version of this story is that just over 100 years ago, uh, Henry Ford and Thomas Edison, the two people, I guess, as much as anybody else who invented the 20th century or who created all the technology that we sort of associated with the changes that define that century, they set out on this series of road trips that take them into rural parts of the country, often deep into the mountains. And they do this in the company of John Burroughs, who is a considerably older writer. I think Burroughs is just about a quarter of a century older than Henry Ford. Uh, and Burroughs has his roots in the transcendentalist movement of the 19th century. He's a nature writer. He's very much focused on the landscape and wildlife, botany. And he helps Ford and Edison and Harvey Firestone, who accompanies them on these trips, to connect to the natural world. And for a couple of weeks, every a year to escape from the world that they themselves were creating. That was the brilliance of this gathering because it seems like these were all men that worked out of separate parts of their brain. John Burroughs, uh, vastly different from Ford and Edison. Edison and Ford probably are, you know, they're always trying to invent something out of nothing. And But uh, I just thought that was the, the, the wonderful aspect of it. Yeah, you know, so... Ford and Edison had actually known each other for quite a while. Um, Ford in the 1890s had worked for the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. And this was at a time when Ford was a young man. He's working on his first internal combustion engine. And he takes that, he builds a sort of small engine and he takes it into the apartment he's living in in uh, Detroit and clamps it to the kitchen sink because he needs electricity to provide a spark, you know, to detonate the fuel and get the engine running. So he runs a, a cable up into the light fixture in the kitchen, which is his only power in the apartment, and starts up this engine, fills the kitchen with smoke. You know, his wife has to rush little Edsel out of the room, um, but it works. But Ford realizes that he needs to learn more about electricity if he's going to make this thing really, really run. So he quits his job and and moves to Detroit uh, and takes a, a job with the Edison Illuminating Company. He doesn't know anything about electricity, but he does know about steam engines, which he had worked on on the farm, and steam was used to generate the electricity. So he rises very quickly um, and becomes chief engineer so that it, when there's a conference in 1896, Ford is the employee chosen to go to New York and take part in this conference. And there he meets Edison and someone says, this this young man is working on a, an internal combustion automobile and Edison wants to hear about this. So Edison, as you may know, was quite deaf. So the entire room had to move around to put uh, Ford next to Edison so he could shout his plan into his ear. And Edison loved the idea and you know encouraged Ford and they remained friends uh, from that time on. But it wasn't until Ford met Burroughs, which we can talk about, that that friendship was really catalyzed and became sort of a more 
uh, intimate friendship, and they began traveling together. Well, it's interesting how they both revered Burroughs. They had both grown up in, in rural environments. And when Burroughs first wrote publicly about how he hated automobiles, they were noisy, they're scaring the horses, they, they smell bad, et cetera, et cetera. The way that Henry Ford responds is so in keeping with most of his personality, if you bypass the anti-Semitism, which is difficult to do. Anyway. Right. But <laughs> right. instead of railing against him publicly, he sends him a car. So tell us that story. It's a great story. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. So Ford at this point is approaching uh, his 50th birthday and the Model T is, you know, the most successful car in the country, maybe the most successful car in the world at this point. But Ford is becoming more and more nostalgic for his boyhood on the farm in Dearborn, which you know, I don't think he really loved life on the farm when he was a boy. He was always trying to get out of work, which was part of what fueled his tinkering with mechanical things. But as he's approaching 50, he's becoming more nostalgic. Uh, and one of the things that he fixates on in this moment is is sort of his earliest memory when his father had come to find him. He, Ford was about four years old. His father led him out into the field near their farmhouse and showed him where this great oak tree had fallen. And he has Henry bend down and look uh, at a branch on this oak tree where a song sparrow has built its nest. And that really made an impression on Ford. And as he's getting close to 50, he can still remember it. He says he can still remember the song of this bird. So birds for him were this kind of link to his past. And I think that's why he starts reading John Burroughs. And, you know, Clara in 1912 gave him a complete set of Burroughs's work. Yeah. So Ford thinks of Burroughs as his favorite writer. But uh, then, as you say, at the end of 1912, he starts seeing these articles where Burroughs is saying that, you know, modern technology and in particular the automobile could destroy our experience of nature, partly because it moves us through the landscape too quickly. Uh. Uh, so we can't really absorb things the way Burroughs had in the 19th century when he, you know, was sauntering through the landscape with people like Walt Whitman and yeah. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Ford doesn't agree with this, obviously, in part because he's selling these cars, he's making a lot of money, but I think more because he Ford genuinely believed that the automobile would help farmers because it would give them a way to escape sort of the isolation of the farm, but also that it would help uh, urban people. And remember, this is a time when in the United States, we're kind of shifting from a mostly rural farming population to a population that for the first time is mostly in cities. And Ford imagined that the automobile would take city people out into the countryside and let them experience nature in a way that would make them want to preserve it. Mm. So he sees Burroughs making these uh, sort of making these warnings about the automobile. And so he gets in touch with him. And this is how, actually how I latched onto the story. I've, I've been interested in Burroughs for years. Um, and I was doing some work in his correspondence. And I found this letter in which he's telling a friend, Mr. Ford of automobile fame is a, an admirer of my books. And he wants to send me a Model T. And you could tell from the correspondence around this time that Burroughs was reluctant. He, you know, <laughs> this is not his thing. But... Ford is maybe the most famous man in the country, and uh, Burroughs, I think, was interested in making his acquaintance, so he accepted the car, and he actually wound up uh, liking it, or at least liking parts of what it gave him. It, it 
he's, you know, in his seventies at this time, um, he can't get around the way he once did. And the car lets him get out in the countryside and look at more birds than he could otherwise. And, and the beautiful part of the story is the one thing the three men had in common was their uh, reverence for nature. Even though Ford was the mechanical guy and Edison was the inventor, they all loved nature and sought information from it. For instance, Ford and Edison would look at nature and figure out if there are any elements of nature that could be used in technology. If Ford, I think you said one of the examples in your book was that Ford was looking for a way to uh, more inexpensively uh, create rubber or something they could use for tires. So they all had an interest in it. It was the one thing they uh, loved in common. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. In fact, every member of this group, uh, including Harvey Firestone, uh, who was often along on these trips, all of them grew up on farms. Uh, Burroughs was the only one who was sort of still trying to make a living as a farmer, as an adult. Um, but, you know, all of them had that experience. And, and you're absolutely right. So if the in the book, I focus on the 1918 trip. I sort of trace a series of travels that get them to that point. Uh, but in 1918, they do this epic trip down into the Great Smoky Mountains. They they meet up in Pennsylvania, uh, in Pittsburgh, the the Midwesterners, uh, Henry Ford and Harvey Firestone and the Easterners, uh, Edison and and Burroughs, uh, converge on that point, and then they go down through uh, the mountains of central Pennsylvania, shave off some of of Western Maryland, mountains of West Virginia, uh, through Southwest Virginia, and then up into the Smoky Mountains of of Tennessee and North Carolina. But all through that trip, uh, Edison in particular is bringing Burroughs plants and sort of asking what they are because uh, Edison will have noticed that there's a milky sap from this plant and maybe that's latex and he might be able to extract rubber from this. And they, and they had been prior to the road trips, they had been to the fair on the, on the West coast and they had, and they had spent time with Luther Burbank and he had really shown them how he was cross pollinating and creating new species and new breeds and talk about that first trip together on the, on the West Coast and what they learned. Yeah. Uh, so the Panama Pacific Exposition was underway that summer. That was the summer of 1915. And Henry Ford was eager to go out there because Ford Motor Company had three exhibits at the fair, including one that was basically a small assembly line that was turning out Model Ts uh, at the rate of like 20 a day in front of the fair goers and, and you know, Ford really wanted to see how that operation was going. So he tried to get Edison to go and Edison kept saying no. But finally, the the fair organizers uh, created a Thomas Edison Day uh, to commemorate the development of the electric lamp. And Ford uses that to get Edison out there. And they wind up having a great time at the fair. And this was one of the most sort of fascinating parts of the book for me. It was sort of reconstructing this afternoon when they're walking through the fair yeah. and, and looking at various exhibits, a lot of the exhibits were things that Edison had actually invented. So, you know, Edison would be standing there explaining a quadruplex telegraph to Ford, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, they, when they went on the Panama, uh, there, there was a great sort of um, diorama of the Panama Canal that you moved through on a on a kind of I love that. I thought it I'd like to see that today. It was like it was like. Why can't they have that at the Epcot Center? That that's pretty cool. It felt like everything 
Disney had taken his ideas. <laughs> right. The the rides. And what year was it? 1916? I mean... That's 1915. 15. Yeah. The experiences were so epic. Yeah. This was the dawn of the industrial age where mm-hmm. nothing moved except people and horses, you know, 10 years prior. People mm-hmm. must have just been mind blown by what they were experiencing. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, I... Uh, as I read reports about artificial intelligence today, I, I sort of think that we are in the same moment because yeah. they were living in a moment when everything was changing. Um, and so there, there's this weird tension, I think, in the air, but especially in Ford himself, between the, this kind of zeal for innovation on the one hand and nostalgia for the world that might be supplanted by the innovation. Well, you know, some of the moments in your book that really made me smile were moments at that fair. Incidentally, some of those buildings are still there in San Francisco, these gorgeous pieces of architecture from that thing. But uh, I, what made me smile was Henry Ford uh, gave everybody a thrill and put on a pair of coveralls and got out there with a wrench and got on the assembly line and he was helping put ca- uh, engines <laughs> and cars together. That's a guy who knew how to do every Everything. job in his in his employee. And then what I loved was he said, if you're going to own a Ford car, you got to know how to change a tire. So right. you would teach yeah. somebody how to change a tire. Or Now, what I didn't understand is to just take the wheel off and put the new tire on, or do they have to take the tire off the rim and completely replace it? I, well, I think in that instance, so that was uh, Ford had gone out with Edison. Edison at this point is working for the U.S. Navy. And so the Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, had arranged for Edison to go out and meet Admiral Fulham, who commanded the fleet on the West Coast. Um, and so Ford had gone with him and they had sort of sailed around the harbor. Um, and so Ford had told Fulham that he would give him and his officers Model T's if they would come to this exhibit. Uh, but then, as you say, as the Model T is about to be presented to them, Ford says you can't have a Ford car unless you know how to change a tire. So I think Admiral Fulham actually had to install the tire onto the rim for the first time and then uh, put it on the car. Well, part of what makes the road trips themselves even possible is that they had so many experts that were part of the party who could, I mean, Henry Ford in many different times is crawling underneath the car. And just when you think that all hope is lost, they're going to have to send away for parts and wait two weeks. He would figure out how to put, so you had the best mechanic in the world on (laughs) what may have been the first grand road trip that America ever, ever witnessed. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, and I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that we think of this whole roadside culture when we think of road trips, you know, mm-hmm. so there are motels, gas stations, rest areas. Mm-hmm. Of course, none of that existed. No. And even signposts between towns were almost non-existent. So, you know, There's finding no such thing your as way. asphalt. These were dirt roads, right? They didn't uh, even yeah, have well, a Thomas so the, guide. <laughs> <laughs> they had a the blue The best book. roads would yeah. be macadam, but, you know, then they would turn to gravel and then dirt and then sort of wagon ruts. Um, so it, there, there was definitely not a, a, an expectation of good roads on these trips. I don't want to get too far ahead of this so people understand who haven't read the book. So these were a series of trips. Yes. With a series of types of transportation. 
Uh, they even went on a boat down to Cuba, and uh, there were cars and trains, and, and, and the various people would plug in and out of the trip if they had some other obligation in their lives. And then other people would be added, Mr. Hershey of chocolate fame, and as you said, Mr. Firestone of... Uh, but the main thing was the camping. Like, yeah. That, Edison yeah. was a purist about camping. Yeah. He wanted to live outside. Yeah. But anyway, so how long did the trip take in total? And um, and I think there were some preliminary, like experimental trips. Edsel, his son, took a couple of trips to sort of see how the system worked, where the car out on the wilds of the hinterlands and stuff. Yeah, so uh, that was actually the summer when Ford and Edison are going by train out to San Francisco. As it happens, and this this wasn't planned, uh, but it happened that Edsel on his own with some of his friends and uh, Edison's son, Theodore, uh, with one of his friends, both drove out to the fair in Model Ts that Ford had had given them. And I tell the story of Edsel's trip as a way to sort of illustrate what road travel at the time was like. But then when, when Edsel tells uh, the older generation about this, I think that starts to percolate in their brains. So at the end of their visit to the to the Panama Pacific Exposition, Edison, you know, who has had such a great time. Edison is somebody who claims never to have taken a vacation, but he liked this so much that he says that they should do it again. And, you know, by this time they've heard the stories from Theodore and Edsel. And he says, you know, that they should travel by car and that they should sleep out at night. And that's the thing that that launches the actual road trip part of this story. To me, one of the most interesting aspects is, and your writing is just beautiful. I, I just, I, I love, I love this book. I, I'm highly recommending this book. But oh, thank you. One of my favorite aspects of the book is the way you describe how folks respond to them when they arrive in, in the middle of where, where we are in West Virginia. Here come not only the most famous men in the world, but almost deities. They have changed the way we live. And so the way that they were received, sometimes people had no idea what Edison looked like, and so they, they didn't respond. But other times, you know, by the time the road trips became a little bit more well-known because local reporters were coming around, people would start to put on events and, you know, the band would play. So describe a little bit of how they received as they, how they were received as they went along. Yeah, well, so maybe I'll tell two sides of of that of that story because I mean you're right that for the most part people recognized them and uh, they were kept sort of a, a kept aware of their progress because reporters in every single little town wanted to say you know Henry Ford and Thomas Edison have just been here so uh, when they roll into uh, the town of Johnson City in in northeast Tennessee uh, which is actually an area near where I grew up. So all of this, you know, sort of astonishing for me to realize that Ford and Edison were traveling on these roads that seemed so mundane uh, when I was a child. But so they roll into Johnson City and uh, they're surrounded. And I think in that case, if I'm remembering correctly, Burroughs was actually recognized first, which was unusual. Well, he had the um, big white beard. You could you could spot him in a crowd. Yes. And he, I think he was proud to be recognized on his own. And then the others come in and, and you know, the whole town comes out and they're clustering around the cars. And a newsboy comes out and offers to sell a paper to Thomas Edison because there's sort of two things that Edison is famous for other than his inventions. And that's his love for apple pie. 
So there are occasions when people come out to give him apple pie uh, and his addiction to newspapers. Uh, <laughs> Edison read several newspapers a day. And yeah. remember, the First World War is underway. So yep. he's particularly uh, hooked on the news. So the newsboy comes out, fights his way through the crowd, hands a paper to Edison. Edison actually takes two and, and hands one back to Harvey Firestone, who's in the back seat, and gives the boy a dime for the two papers. And it came out later that the newsboy, first of all, had had to sell the paper to Edison because his father was the editor of the paper and said, <laughs> if you don't, you know, uh, you'll lose your job. Uh, but also after uh, the, the party left, the boy was able to sell that dime for $5 because it had once belonged to Thomas Alva Edison. How cool is that? Wow. Well, you know, when I, I, I read they all rolled into Johnson City and I tried to put that into a current context as if Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Jeff Zuckerberg rolled into a city <laughs> in a Range Rover Mark. and the whole world is going, this can't be happening. And uh, everybody went nuts. But it's even bigger, Fritz, because these guys, what celebrities did we have? The, what, the radio, we had radio celebrities, perhaps, but the, the film industry was brand new. Oh, no, they, so they were they were the biggest celebrities. These guys were deities. So I think it was even bigger than if, you know, Justin Bieber pulled into my driveway. I never mentioned Justin Bieber. I would never do that. In, uh, no, but he might lessons. pull in the driveway, <laughs> so you should be ready to meet Oh, him. okay. I want to talk about World War I because that was a pivotal time. Uh, and I, I, I was drawn to the transformations made by Ford in your story because he started out. Um, as a pacifist, and uh, there were some shenanigans that went on in the industrial area that sort of aced him out of making money on the war, so uh, he was angry about that. And then, uh, I, I could be putting this in the complete wrong context, so you can straighten me out, but then didn't the government hire him as a bit of a consultant on mass production because of he invented the, you know, the the lines, and so then he did become involved with World War One, and then he was manufacturing things like the U-boats uh, or whatever they were, or not U-boats, but uh, uh, patrol eagle boats. Eagle boats, and so then he was starting to make money on it, and became less of a pacifist. So he, his mind changed a bit. Uh, well, I I don't know that money played so much of a role in it. Um, I mean, there there were critics who claimed that that was the case, but I think that Ford uh, genuinely thought that the war was was wrong and so initially he says that he would give uh all of his fortune to to shorten the war by even a day and he starts making uh you know sort of real offers like he would offer a million dollars and then 10 million dollars and he, he actually went to europe and tried to negotiate a peace right mm -hmm. yeah exactly so he ultimately winds up uh involved with these peace activists uh including a hungarian woman named rosica schwimmer uh, who convinces him that she has the warring parties ready to negotiate uh, if he would just like bring a peace delegation to Europe. So he actually charters a Scandinavian American line steamship called the Oscar II and sails for Europe with this peace delegation. Uh, Burroughs and Edison both felt very differently about the war. Uh, Burroughs was like vehemently anti-German and is sort of constantly in his journal hoping that the U.S. will join the war so that we can help uh, rid the world of, of German militarism, as he puts it. And Edison um, begins working with the Naval Consulting Board uh, under Josephus Daniels to try to bring the fleet into 
the modern age using scientific principles. He puts together a board that involves scientists, inventors, uh, industrialists, engineers, um, you know, to try to to help the Navy. But what happens with Ford is, I think, simply that the U.S. entered the war in April 1917, and Ford realized that he wasn't going to bring the war to an end through pacifist activity. And so at that point, he decides that what he wants to do is end the war as quickly as possible. And so, as you say, he was then sort of recruited by Josephus Daniels to at first just help design a patrol boat because German U-boats were raising complete chaos in the Atlantic and shipping was really crippled. And this was hurting the U.S. already. Like Grain supplies from the Midwest um, couldn't get to the East because the trains that were carrying other things to the East couldn't put their uh, cargo onto ships because the ships were not leaving ports. And so the, you know, the entire United States economy was, was hurt by this. Um, so Ford helps the Navy design a patrol boat to combat uh, German submarines. And the idea was that it would be something that could be manufactured very quickly, like the Model T. And he actually dedicates his new factory on the River Rouge outside Detroit to creating these Eagle boats and starts turning them out at a really fantastic rate. And in fact, there's a New York Times article from that period that says that he was producing these things as if they were so many flivers, which was the contemporary term for the Model T itself. Mm -hmm. And Edison was also working with uh, the Navy on on camouflage and some ideas that they, the Navy was reticent to adapt. Uh, are, are some of those ideas, were they eventually utilized or are they still because I would I would imagine the concept of seeing a thing or not seeing a thing is is permanent despite tech the advance of technology right yeah, he did the one person yeah. submarine too Edison right well that was a story that was that was uh put out that uh, the story was that he was going to that he had invented this one person submarine and Ford was going to make a million of them and that would that would end the war but uh Edison when Firestone wrote to him about this said that that you know that wasn't true mm. But what he had done, uh, you know, he he had worked with camouflage for the ships. He had uh, analyzed where ships had been attacked and had come up with plans to uh, route ships around zones that, you know, were dangerous. But he also had some really amazing ideas. Like he came up with a plan to use these buoys that were sort of like the kinds of things the Coast Guard used for, for marking, you know, um, areas of danger along the coast, but he was going to make them manned. And so the a crew would float in this, in this basically a large sort of boiler uh, floating in the ocean and, you know, keep a lookout for German ships. But if they saw German ships or if a storm uh, approached, these things could submerge and avoid any kind of danger. Uh, those weren't manufactured. The, the one thing that I think we are seeing today, and I, I've actually written a piece about this, um, is that Edison came up with a plan to use what are basically naval drones, uh, small unmanned craft with uh, mines attached to them, to attack a German-held harbor in Belgium. And the idea was that he would send these things in on a dark night. They rode very close to the water, and they could detonate their explosives 
uh, near German ships and the causeway to cripple this this harbor. Uh, the Navy didn't do that, but these boats that he described are remarkably similar to what Ukraine is using in the Black Sea today. And they, they just attacked a Russian ship with some of these uh, on Sunday. Oh, wow. wow. Now, how much do you think that leaving behind all the distractions of their of their day-to-day lives and just sitting around a campfire no interruptions just talking these great minds how much do you think they impacted each other's worldviews and ideas i i i think a lot uh, i think they really brought out the best in each other but i think being out in the in the countryside really made the difference i'm not sure that if they were sitting around you know ford's table in dearborn or or um, edison's table in west orange the same things would have happened so, I mean, one example of this is that in the 1918 trip, uh, they developed this kind of obsession in which they could not drive past an abandoned mill yeah. without stopping. And if, earlier you showed, I think, the photograph of the yeah. four of them sitting on this this water wheel that was in Lead Mine, Virginia. And they they would get out and explore these things, look at how they operated, and Ford would start calculating how much energy, how much horsepower he could derive from this thing if he you know, got it running again. And it became such a kind of fixture of their days that I became self-conscious writing about it because it was like, oh, then they stopped at another mill. Mm-hmm. It just happens over and over and over. But the result of this was that just after that 1918 trip, uh, Ford started buying up these abandoned mills in throughout Michigan at first. I think the first one was a place called Nankin Mills. And he started this program that he called Village Industries. And the idea was to decentralize Ford Motor Company's production, use water power, convert these mills into small factories, use water power to run them. Each one would produce you know, one part, maybe a valve for a Model T or a particular kind of fastener. And, you know, at the same time, they're driving through farmland, they're meeting farmers, looking at farms. And so Ford realized that these little factories could extend a lifeline to farm communities by giving farmers uh, employment in the off season. And he put this program into practice. And uh, by the end of the 1930s, I think there were, depending on how you define them, there were 20 or 30 of these in operation. And on the 1919 trip, he took the you know the camping party up to green island on the hudson where he was opening up a water-powered small factory to produce tractor parts and he actually had ford edison uh or had burroughs edison and firestone engrave their initials on the cornerstone of this little water-powered factory to sort of commemorate the fact that all of this had come out of their travels together Wow. Hey, uh, Ford, I, I, I found, it, although it, um, it's impossible to pick out who's the most fascinating creature of the group, but I, I found him to be uh, so interesting because he's so many things simultaneously. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, um, he was having a conversation with Woodrow Wilson, who was president at the time, and on that conversation, Ford decided to put women on an equal pay scale with men. 
That mean he may be the first industrialist in the United States to do that. It was the first time in American industry that it had ever been done. What a forward-thinking thing to do, and uh, I, it was it yeah. was a great surprise. He also believed that everyone who worked for him should be able to buy a car. He understood, you know, what Biden's talking about. Now building up the middle class from the bottom up, mm-hmm. from the middle out, it means that if folks can't buy what you're selling as a capitalist, then you don't do well as a capitalist. He understood those concepts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, and and in fact, you know, so that all sort of stemmed from his an- announcement in 1914 that he was going to pay his workers five dollars a day, which I think. It's hard for us to realize what a revolutionary change that was. I mean, that was basically doubling the pay for a day's work. And at the same time, Ford uh, shrank the workday from nine hours to eight. And I make the case in the book that that was really something that came out of his first trip with John Burroughs. So after uh, Ford gave Burroughs the, the Model T, Burroughs went out to Dearborn, met Ford, and they sort of bonded over birds because they went out into uh, the meadows around Ford's house in Dearborn. And Ford had set up all these bird houses and they were sort of seeing who knew the, mo- the most bird calls, who could you know, identify the most birds. So Ford then uh, in 1913 comes out to visit Burroughs. Burroughs lived uh, up on the Hudson in New York uh, at a place called West Park. And Burroughs wanted to give Ford something sort of commensurate with what he had shown him in Dearborn and, you know, with the gift of the Model T. So he takes him up to Concord, Massachusetts uh, to see what I think of as the foundries of American literature. You know, they Mm -hmm. went to see uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's house, which was preserved just as it had been when Emerson lived there. They went out to Walden Pond, where Thoreau had lived. And... Uh, for whatever reason, Ford really fixated on Emerson, and he wrote to a friend after this trip and said that Burroughs had given him Emerson. And he goes back home and he starts reading, and you know there are copies of uh, or editions of Emerson that he owned and annotated, and he seems to have really focused on this essay, Compensation, which talks about you know what what the value of work is and and how. Um, how to carry out uh, your interactions with other people in an equitable and fair way. And then in 1914, just months after this, he announces this $5 day. And when a reporter from the Chicago day book comes out to talk to him about this, um, first of all, he says, the reporter says, you know, why'd you do this? And he says, it's social justice. That doesn't to me sound like Henry Ford's. So I think maybe the PR department had gotten involved <laughs> at that point. Um, but, uh, you know, he says that he wanted to pay them a fair wage. And then the reporter asked for a photograph to go with the article. And what Ford gives her is a picture that was taken when Burroughs was visiting Dearborn earlier in the year. And it shows the two of them sitting in the quadricycle, which is yeah. the first mm-hmm. automobile Ford had made. And it's this spindly little thing that's basically two bicycles welded together with a with a small internal combustion engine. And it didn't have a steering wheel. It had a tiller to steer, um, which shows you sort of how unformed the idea of the automobile was at this point. But in the photograph, they're sitting in the two seats in this thing, and it's John Burroughs's hand that's on the tiller. And I realize that I may be making too much of this, but 
to my mind, that's Ford sort of signaling that this $5 workday was something that, that Burroughs had steered him toward, you know, that that, that oh, that's meeting uh... really had an, an impact on him. Yeah. And I, uh, I thought I would ask you, I mean, it's not answered in your book, but maybe you just have some ideas about why a man who so embraced the humanistic teachings of Ralph Waldo Emerson was so quick to blame one race and religion for all of our, all of society's ills. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's baffling. And I, I have to tell you that Ford's anti-Semitism almost kept me from writing this book. I, you know, I found out about the trips um, and they were fascinating. I started digging through Burroughs's journal and, and correspondence. And I really wanted to do this, but I thought, you know, what everyone thinks of about Ford is, you know, about the anti-Semitism and I just don't know that I can wrestle with it. Um, and then I found that, that Burroughs, maybe to a lesser extent Edison, but certainly Burroughs was as baffled by it as I was. Uh, and was really repelled by that side of Ford. He he loved Ford. I mean, he really seems genuinely to have have liked him in in almost every way, but that just you know pushed him away. And so I realized that I could deal uh, to the extent that I do in the book with Ford's anti-Semitism through the eyes of Burroughs. Really, a complex man. And, and I, that's why I was definitely. so fascinated by him. And you did it very deftly. Mm-hmm. To, to give people a better handle, describe each of their personalities. Was there an alpha male in the group? I bet it was Ford. <laughs> I bet it was Ford. Uh, well, I don't know. I mean, uh, Edison, uh, you know, came up with all of the plans for this. Edison was the one who decided where they would go. And Edison imposed the rules, you know, uh, no sleeping indoors, no no shaving, no bathing. Uh, sometimes wow. these were were broken, uh, mostly by Harvey Firestone. Uh, and, you know, Edison sat in the front seat of his car with this this simplex that was a weirdly a right-hand drive car. And so he sat in the passenger seat with all these maps on his lap and the, the automobile blue book to guide him. Uh, so in that sense, he was the alpha male who, you know, created the atmosphere of the trips. But as soon as they got into camp, it was Ford who had the most energy and who's constantly running around, you know, creating wood chopping contests and <laughs> tree climbing contests. Wow. And uh, there's a, a great moment uh, when they're actually kind of forced to stay at a hotel one night, which was against Edison's policy. And Ford took uh, Firestone out to hike up the mountain behind the hotel and they, they go up it and Ford sort of hasn't had enough activity. So they go down the other side. <laughs> come back up and then back down to the hotel. And Ford still has so much energy that he challenges Edison to this contest in which he takes Edison's cigar and puts it on the mantle uh, over the fireplace and says Ed Edison can't kick it off. And Edison, who you know was a somewhat stout man, you wouldn't think could do this, but he hitches up his pants and <laughs> whacks his thing and, and knocks it right off. And so Ford wants to try. He puts it back up. And, you know, Ford is lanky and limber. You'd think he'd be able to do this, but he it takes him several tries to hit it. <laughs> uh, so at this point, you know, he he wants to win at something. So he decides that they will race up the stairs uh, to the landing in, in the hotel. And Burroughs, who's kind of stayed out of it up to this point, you know, gets stirred up by Ford's enthusiasm. So they all decide to do this race. Uh, Ford bounds up and wins the race and Burroughs like makes it kind of halfway and tumbles back down and they have to carry him back up to his room. Oh my God. So 
in terms of activity, Ford is, you know, is on top. Um, but well, then Burris it's, was older. It's, I, I think it, one of the really touching moments of your story that I just loved was when they were down off of Cuba. And a couple of things that touched me about that story, because they went, they had Hershey with them at, for that part of the trip and visited the sugarcane plantations in Cuba. And when my uncle uh, graduated from Georgia Tech in the 30s, his first professional job was uh, being the manager of a sugarcane plantation in Cuba. And he said, oh, it was really? the, he said it was the greatest time of his life. And from that point on, every month, he and his old friends would meet at Cuban restaurants in Miami and eat there. He said, anyway, that, that just touched me. But the, the, the real sensitive moment, I thought, was uh, Burroughs' wife passed away when he was down there. And... You know, how somebody deals with their grief really shows their character. And he found that he was able to soothe his soul by going out and just visiting nature and identifying things he hadn't seen before. And he was looking to nature to sort of hug him through this experience. And I, I found it to be a very, very touching moment in your story. Yeah, well, th I mean, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, I, I think so. Burroughs knew that his wife was likely to die. And I think that's, in fact, why Ford took him on this trip. Ford had planned the trip to meet with Milton Hershey and look at his sugar plantations with an eye toward producing fuel, uh, alcohol fuel for for automobiles, but also uh, toward maybe shifting that uh, growing technology to rubber. But then when it became clear that Burroughs' wife was in her last days, he invited him to come because Burroughs' family was uh, afraid that he might not survive sort of witnessing her death. Mm. So he knew it was coming, but it it you know it still hit him hard. And as you say, he he went ashore alone and goes up into the hillsides around uh, Havana and you know just sort of immerses himself in nature. And that's that's the only way he can get through it. You um, open your book by talking about Clara Ford buying a library so that she understood that her husband knew a lot about what he knew a lot about and he knew very little about what he knew very little about so and then that's <laughs> he did kind of you know take to the books and he did you know that what that's what got him into burrows and all this but um then later on in the book you talk about the libel trial in which henry ford revealed the extent of uh, the imbalance uh you know of his knowledge base and that was kind of a stunning moment tell us a little bit about that yeah, so Ford had sued the Chicago Tribune for libel uh, because they had run a story at, at a time when, um, I think this is when there was trouble with Pancho Villa along the Mexican border, and the National Guard was being called up to go down and try to keep order there. And the Tribune had published a story saying that uh, Ford would not give employees who took part in this their jobs back when they returned which I think turned out not to be the case. I mean, this someone they talked to at the Ford company maybe had said this, but it was not the Ford policy. Um, but in the course of all of this, they had called Ford um, a, an ignorant idealist and an anarchist. And so he sues them for libel. And the Tribune's lawyers deal with this by putting him on the stand and trying to show that he is, in fact, ignorant. And so he's asked all sorts of questions about, you know, civics and American history, and he repeatedly fails. You know, he uh, is asked about uh, whether the United States has had a revolution. And he says, yes. And they said, well, you know, when was that? And he says that was in 1812. Um, 
he's asked about uh, Benedict Arnold and he says, oh, yeah, I think he's a writer. And, you know, he just again and again sort of proves that he doesn't really know about much outside of of automobile Maybe that explains his anti-Semitism. Well, that's why I was kind of like conflating the, these two, because like he obviously he was uninformed on the history of Jewish persecution, which propelled people who were not permitted to own land to cultivate an ability to manage shops and money. And that there's reasons why, you know, things happen to people and then their lived experiences kind of inform what they go on to do or not do. And but he's he was so confident in what he did know that it made him like arrogant in terms of like arrogant and ignorant can be a dangerous combination. Uh, And a lot of what Ford said could have fueled Hitler. So it's really dangerous. Our words are powerful. And we now that we all have a platform, I think we all have to be really careful about jumping to conclusions about wide swaths of of folks and, and just being more graceful about what we say. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one sort of frightening thing about that story is that although Ford, you know, was ridiculed in the press, um, the population of the country, especially the rural population of the country, um, saw it quite differently. And they saw him as a hero. And he got, you know, tens of thousands of letters in the wake of this, you know, saying, don't let them, you know, beat you down. You know, you've done great things. And he actually then um winds up in 1918 running for Senate for this open Senate seat in Michigan. And uh, that's partly because Woodrow Wilson, I think, wants to thank him for his contribution to the war effort, but also keep him on track. And he's utterly unfit for this. And the kind of amazing thing is that in the 1918 trip, his friends don't make it a secret that he's unfit for this. You know, around the campfire, Edison says to him, you know, why would you want to do that? Like you, you couldn't even speak. You'd be completely mom. And a few years later, so Ford lost that race. But in 1924, his name came up again for uh, to campaign for the presidency. And at that point, his wife kind of joins his friends and says, you know, says this is a bad idea. And she actually says that the day Ford uh, announces a campaign for the presidency, she'll be on the first boat to England. Uh. <laughs> That was great. Edison says the perfect thing, I think. And, uh, you know, I I think about this in in politics today. Uh, Edison says, is asked if he would vote for Ford for president. And he says, I would not vote for Mr. Ford for president, but for the leader of an an industrial or manufacturing firm, I would vote for him twice. (laughs) Nice way to get out of your insulting your friend. (laughs) Uh, You know, we we talked earlier um, about at least two of those three guys, Edison and Ford, being tent poles in the Industrial Revolution, early 20th century. And and Wheezy mentioned that people were frightened about these changes. And I, I found a great connection, something that resonated in your book, with the fear that we see people undergoing with the AI uh dawn right now and you have a blurb from a new york times article at the turn of the 20th century written by hg wells that sounded almost exactly like the arguments we're hearing today in fear of the development of ai and it said quote scientific warfare had now placed civilization at the breaking point he predicted a bleak future if we didn't get some rules and regulations around death dealing machinery and I thought, wow, that pretty much explains some of the 
congressional testimony we heard last week. <laughs> mm -hmm. Unbelievable. So some things don't change. Yes, exactly. And, you know, that came out um, at the time of the Panama Pacific Exposition. And one of the things that fair was doing was really trumpeting industrial development and industrial progress. And so H.G. Wells's voice, I, I wanted to get into the book as this kind of balance to what was going on at the fair, you know, that the industrialization had accomplished a lot, but there were risks that came along with it. Well, like with anything, you know, we're, we're moving forward at exponentially rapid rates. And so it becomes increasingly terrifying. But you write about a time period where, you know, all of this, the lights coming on in, in a city, uh, someone motoring down the road, uh, the idea that somebody was flying through the air. These were this, you know, you have a quote from Luther Burbank where he said in your book, you quote him saying, science is greater than any fairy tale. And I think for folks who were alive then who had maybe walked across the country and then 10 years later could drive back and then 10 years later could fly back, you know, it must mm -hmm. have just been staggering. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's a kind of funny thing that happens to Ford that has to do with this. So this entire story, as we said, starts when Ford, um, you know, sees Burroughs complaining about the automobile. And, and in one of these articles, Burroughs says that wisdom isn't likely to come in one of our chariots of fire, that wisdom is more likely to come on foot or riding an ass. And so that's what Burroughs, I mean, Ford reacted to initially. But after the 1918 trip, uh, Ford seems to want to pull Burroughs back into the 19th century and sort of make him the person that had first appealed to, to Ford. And so Christmas that year, he sends Burroughs another gift. And this time it's a donkey, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is like so shocking, you know, but it's like he, he found Burroughs the kind of person, you know, who would walk or, or ride a donkey and he wants to leave him that way. And Burroughs at first thinks, you know, that, this will help him. He'll use this to get up to slab sides where he likes to spend his days, uh, which is a little kind of shack up above his house. Uh, it, it will allow him to get around and look at birds as he as he wants to. But he finds that he doesn't bond with the donkey and it, it keeps kicking up its heels, which is exactly the language he had used about the Model T when oh, he first started funny. trying to drive that. <laughs> um, and Burroughs wound up giving up the donkey. He gave it to a man who lived nearby and he goes back to the Model T. And I think, you know, once that change is introduced, it's very hard to turn back the clock. Did they remain friends when this was all at the end of 1918? Uh, they remained friends. They took a, another trip, uh, this whole group, in 1919, and I use that as a sort of an epilogue in the book. Um, but Burroughs then died in 1921. Ford uh, continued to travel with Edison and Firestone, and I talk a little bit about these trips, but by this point, everything just ballooned in size. Um, other members of the families began to come along, Reporters were now on to the story and would follow them from place to place. Often there would be camera crews. Uh, Firestone brought a string of ponies on one of these these things. <laughs> Calvin Coolidge uh, took part in one, Warren G. Harding and another one. And it just became a kind of media event instead of the, you know, the actual road trip that I was interested in. Well, it's just an absolutely gorgeous book. I, I was riveted. Really so interesting. I highly, highly recommend it's it. It's a great piece of American history all in one book for you. So this yep. is West Davis's book. Thank you so much. Book. 
It's called American Journey, and I will read our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediaPathPod, and on Facebook, where our show page is MediaPathPodcast, and our Facebook group is MediaPath with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediaPathPodcast. You can write to us at MediaPathPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us if you would on social media. You can sign up for our spicy newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our guests, Dylan Brody and Wes Davis. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I am Louise Palenker here with Fritz Coleman. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. That was awesome, Wes. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's, it's so nice to talk to people who know so much about the book. I feel like I, I learned about it. <laughs> now, well, you're talking about two history enthusiasts here, so you had us hooked at the title. Yeah. <laughs>